Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I am your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. It's May 12th, and I've got a great show for you this week. I know I say that every week, but I actually, I really mean it this time. I, uh, I reached out to a young woman who is going to be featured in this Devil's Advocate, and she's going to deliver to us her recipe for luck. I am thoroughly impressed by this verbal essay, and I'm hoping maybe I can convince her to deliver some other content uh, similar to this, because it's good. I think you're going to dig it a lot. Um, it really drives home the message of this episode, and it won't make sense for a second, but uh, bear with me here. In the Infernal Informant, I'm going to be talking about two articles, one, wider problems found at IRS, and two, Gates. U.S. military action in Syria would be mistake. And in the creature feature, I'm going to bring you a sort of one-on-one -on -one with Brian Moore. We're going to be talking about the HP Lovecraft Bronze Bust Project that he and his team have been working on for a little bit of time. It has been amazingly successful as yet, and the Kickstarter isn't even over. There's still time. So that's actually going to take... <laughs> that interview is long. I, you know, we're looking at like a half hour. Every time I talk to Brian Moore, it, it, we always sort of go off on tangents and we always have a really long discussion. I always enjoy it. I'm pretty sure he always enjoys it. And I'm pretty sure you always enjoy it. So bear with me. Um, but before I jump into the show here, I do have a couple things that I wanted to touch on. I can't believe I didn't even mention this. So last week, uh, and it was actually two weeks ago, but I should have mentioned it in last week's episode. I was in Old Nick. I was in a feature of Old Nick magazine. First of all, the, uh, I think it's like Sin and Sex issue, uh, Valpurgis Noct issue of Old Nick magazine is out. And I have not only an ad in it, not only is my comic sort of, uh, blurb mentioned in it, but I got a feature. Nine Cents is featured in Old Nick magazine. How exciting is that? Ah, this is awesome. Uh, so you got my ugly mug sitting there looking out at you and you get to hear a little bit about nine cents and it is very very cool so if for no other reason because i'm featured in this episode or this issue go pick up old nick magazine you can get the digital version or you can get the print version or you can if you get the print you actually get the digital free but um and i actually have the print version here and it's it's nice it's good stuff so I mean, if you like men's magazines eh, you should probably like this uh, I, I know you will. It's beautiful women, and it's uh, a little bit of culture, it's a little bit of uh, fiction, it's a little bit of information, and it's a lot of good. So check out Old Nick Magazine. You can go to the website, oldnickmagazine.com, check it out there. 
But yeah, featured in Holding Magazine. I was so excited when that happened. And uh, I mean, there were so many things going on around Valpurgis Noct that I, 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 you know, how do you juggle so many different really exciting things, especially for centrically Nine Cents. I mean, Nine Cents has been growing exponentially since I started it so many years ago. And this past Valpurgis Noct episode with uh, Magistrate Templey Rex Blanche Barton was amazing. And it got amazing uh, response from all of you. And I've been getting a ton of interaction uh, via email primarily. So I just want to take a second and thank all of you who have sent me emails. It means a lot to me. And w- here's what I love. I get emails from some of you. And I- I'm not going to drop any names. I From some of you who are like, I don't agree with you. <laughs> about... 50% of the stuff you say or talk about. But I wanted to say don't stop. Keep it up. Because, uh, you know, you find what I'm doing of value. And that means a hell of a lot to me. And that's why I'm paying so much, um, uh, not paying, but I'm, I'm, I'm spending so much time looking for others to help contribute. So, like I mentioned earlier, in this Devil's Advocate, I've got Damned Lucky giving us her recipe for luck. And I think she has a, a voice that is... Um, oddly reminiscent of Jodie Foster, in uh, my opinion, but <laughs> uh, I think she uh, has uh, things of value to say. I reached out to Erin for Down to the Crossroads, and she has been almost a year now delivering amazing blues, uh, pre-war blues to you, the listener, and and uh, you know her own. Uh, Really fantastic personalities coming through in these uh, Down the Crossroads segments. But that's not all. Oh no, that's not all. There's another one coming. And if you've been paying attention to online networks, you've probably seen me uh, posting little uh, previews about it uh, on the YouTube page. And uh, also, you know, obviously on all the other social networking pages that Nine Senses uh, has a presence on. But, yeah, I've got another one that I'm bringing to you. I'm very excited. I'm not going to mention anything about it this episode. I'm going to talk about it next episode briefly. But I think you're going to love it. And it's just this continuing evolution of what Nine Cents is. So, for these first couple years, it was virtually just me. And every once in a while, I have an, uh, a guest on. I want the Nine Cents brand to last beyond me. So like I said, I will only be doing nine years of nine cents to some degree if uh, if I find someone who is capable of, of taking it and I trust them, uh, you know, after four years or five years, then I will entrust them to, you know, take the nine cents brand and continue it out for nine years. If I have contributors who want to take an active role or if you're a potential contributor, reach out to me. Let me know. I would I would be happy to include as many voices in this uh, nine cents as possible because at at its base what nine cents is is a satanic voice it's a satanic perspective in our world and i'm not the only satanist here so so you know that's what i'm doing i'm gonna i'm gonna try to continue to bring you um voices that i find of worth and as always, I take recommendations. So if there's someone that you would like to hear from, or you would like me to interview, or you would just like to, you know, have them read an essay of theirs, let me know. 
I'll do my damnedest to reach out to them. And if they're willing, then, you know, we will get them on the show. I already, you know, like I mentioned, I have a couple things in the works, but I'm always open to more. And it, it it's always about fun. And it, it this is an entertainment podcast. And if it's not fun, why are we doing it? Why are you listening? And why am I taking time away from my family, the people I love to bring it to? You know what I mean? So, you know, at its core, let's together, and I don't mean this to sound all hippie, but let's together make this a worthwhile uh, brand, and uh, yeah, moving forward, that's exactly where we are headed. I'm very excited. Okay, I actually wanted to also talk about, fuck, there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, this is going to be a long episode, people. <laughs> I hope you're strapped in, uh, digging your heels, uh, and I hope you have fun. Okay, so I, Storm, uh, Warlock Storm, of Art on You Studios. He was on the episode last week. And I've, you know, I've had him on the show a number of times. He's a personal friend. Um, we, we, we talk from time to time. We don't hang out as much as I'd like, but real life gets in the way of that. So, um, I was supporting him in his Inkathon. That just happened this last weekend. Uh, yesterday, quite literally. And before, before I went to the Inkathon, um, to do that, we, the Utah Renaissance Festival is going on right now. And so I took my daughter and my son and my wife, and we like to go, and there's a, a really kind of fun jousting thing, uh, this, you know, like, horseback tournaments where it's not just jousting, they do other, like, skill, like, spear throwing and uh, cutting of fruit and stuff like that. It, it sounds weird, but it's actually kind of fun and entertaining for uh, kids and stuff, <laughs> and me, because really, I'm just a big kid. Um so we like to go for that, but I, my favorite part is the belly dancing. So I get, I, the last time we went, I was pulled up and I was told the whole like the maypole thing. And so there's just a bunch of women belly dancing around me, which was fucking awesome. I love belly dancing. Uh, it's so sexy. And it's just a lot of fun. So I always like to go to see that. And so we did. And it was great. It was a lot of really fun. It's weird, belly dancers. They always fall into like two categories. It's either the grandma who's still trying to feel sexy or it's the young girl who's trying to be sexy. Um, either way, I, on its face, I appreciate it for what it is. And uh, I, I, I love the ladies. So I, <laughs> I, I don't mind watching it uh, regardless. But... Um, but that, you know, that was not. So there was also these uh, equestrian gymnasts where they do these uh, sort of poses and stuff. And this is really kind of what I wanted to speak to you about this, because really all these Renaissance festivals are is an avenue for people to uh, huck their shit. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, macrame and uh, metallurgy and uh, silver jewelers. And I mean, it's all ceramics. It, it's all just people trying to sell shit to you, really, whether it's food or just crap. But that's what these events are focused around. Every once in a while you get a good magician or you get a good entertainer, a uh, uh, musician. But, um, yeah, so th th these ladies were doing these, it, I don't know what they call it, like vaulting or, or something like that on horses as the horse is sort of going in a circle. But uh, it's, it, I, I just thought it was so funny because... They do a trick, and then obviously people clap because they did a trick on the back of the horse. But all the tricks boil down to them showing you their vagina. Like, you, they have leotards on, okay? But, and there's only so much you can do on horseback. 
And so all every single one of the tricks were just them presenting their vagina to you. It was weird. Like I, I, and I never really thought of it like that before until I, I just, I, I was sort of watching this and I'm like clapping and I'm yelling and stuff because obviously they encourage you to do that stuff. Every trick ends in a vagina proffering. <laughs> it was interesting. I wish life was like that more. I wish there was a little bit more of the uh, vagina <laughs> presentation. I would enjoy life a little bit more if that were the case. I mean, it was fun and I, it, it must be relatively challenging. Any gymnastic activity is dangerous at some level, but certainly on horseback. And so I don't want to take away from their skill. I mean, they practice and stuff, but that was like every trick. It was just like, hey, vagina. Hey, hop, twist, oh, vagina. Hey, leg spread, oh, yep, that's right, vagina. It was all, it was just so funny. Um, but, you know, it, I still clapped and I still had a good time. And the kids loved it. And it, here's something that pisses me off. And I understand that, you know, you go to these things and you're supposed to, it's supposed to be a total environment. But it's hard to be a total environment when half of the people are and half aren't. And so I always run into this weird awkward situation where one person is in character and they are talking to you in the thickest worst american version of a british accent that they can muster and i'm assuming the expectation is that they want you to speak that way back but i won't i, I refuse and so it's always this weird awkward thing where they're like good day i will you and you're just like i am well Thank you. And they're like, so you're going to come over to my booth then, eh? It's <laughs> like, who are you, fucking Oliver? I'm not giving you porridge. Why are you talking this way to me? I'm with my family. I'm just trying to enjoy the atmosphere. And I know you think you're being a part of this atmosphere, but you're horrible. Your accent is shit. And you d just taking a cloth and wrapping it around your face does not mean you're <laughs> immediately embroiled in... I don't know, 13th century culture? Like, I'm not buying it. It's it's just not convincing. And your shitty accent is actually detracting from that even more. So yeah, if you want to just stand at your booth and act like a jackass, do it. I I respect it. Own your jackassy nature. But don't be walking around expecting every single person there to be talking in the same shitty accent as you are. One... I, not everyone had that accent back then. Arguably, most people in the world didn't. So, so I, what, I should just start, I don't know, speaking in a Latin accent? Because maybe I'm from Rome. You know, I mean, how far are you going to carry this ridiculous charade? And why is it always England-centric? There was a lot of cultures in the 13th century. Not all of them were English. So let's let's maybe broaden our horizons a little, people, all right? The Renaissance is not just England. In fact, the majority, I would argue, of the Renaissance was Italian. So, you know, put that in your shitty carved pipe and smoke it. Other than that, it was a great time. <laughs> it was. Oh, and, and my son was uh, doing... So my son has been doing this sort of school dance thing. And I... My wife and I were on vacation uh, a week and a half ago. Again, you know, I, I should have brought this up last week, but I didn't. Um, we, we were on vacation, and so we went to his school, and we watched him do his dance for the entire school. 
<clears throat> which was a lot of fun. I think it was Brian Setzer's orchestra's version of the Nutcracker. And so it's a little rockabilly. It's uh, all guitar. It's a little bit of fun. Um, and, and he had fun doing it. So, you know, that was awesome. But what I noticed is all of the kids in schools and and this is sort of just how I was in school too. They're all folding their arms, being all quiet, and they're walking in lines. It reminds me very much of a Pink Floyd The Wall uh, video. Um, the teachers are overreacting whenever a kid is giggling or talking, and they freak out, and they try to, you know, especially when there's a parent by, they have to prove that they are the authoritative uh, individual that they're supposed to be, and that they're in charge, and so they sort of, you know, overcompensate for the children being children, which always, you know, just sort of blew my mind. But they would, you know, you know, go in the hall. We need to have a talk. And, you know, just for giggling or talking. I mean, it's going to happen. They're kids. It's an elementary school. And it was for the entire school. And so there was tons of children. It's expected that they're going to act like children. Anyway, um, my son performed. And then after, you know, during the whole performance, he was like looking at us and I was looking at him. And it was that, you know, when you look at someone that you love and you smile and it's sort of, it's like this infectious feeling, like you just want to giggle and laugh. And well, anyway, I do. And that's kind of, you know, that, so that was happening. So he was trying to focus. And so he was trying to avoid eye contact and stuff when he was performing. But as soon as he was done, and this is what I love about my boy. As soon as he was done, he broke out of ranks. He, uh, you know, the little formation uh, of the class, and he was ducking and dodging instructors who were looking at him, jaw on the floor, shocked that this child was stepping outside of uh, the, the designated area that he's supposed to be in at this individual moment. He ran up to us, and he gave us a big hug, and, you know, he gave him a hug back and, you know, kissed his head and told him he did a wonderful job. And we're very proud of him. All the while, these teachers and these kids looking like, why does he get to do that? What, what, what makes him so special? And the teacher's are like, well, do I say something? I mean, he's hugging his parents. I don't want to be an asshole. I, you know, what are their parents going to react like? And uh, it was, it was really funny that he just totally disregarded something I would never have done as a kid. I would have just waited for after school and then, you know, talked to my parents then. But he was like, fuck it. I want a hug for my parents. I'm getting a hug. And he just ducked and dodged and busted through the lines and just gave us a big hug. It was so fantastic. I, I love that about my son. Very much an individual. And it reminded me how, how one, how much we're trying to train our children not to be children and just to be, I, I don't know, like, like trained dogs, like animals or something. It seems like it. And, um, two, how, how much stronger he is than I was at that age. And one, it makes me feel good because I feel like I'm doing a good job, but I realistically don't think I had anything to do with that. I think that's everything that's just within him as an individual, which I respect and I admire and I love. Um, and it, it this is something that I've seen throughout I, you know, obviously everyone sees it throughout their lives, but, you know, just, it, it's always amazing. I, and I would like to think that I, I help bring this out in people. Like when I was in the army, for example, uh, basic training, uh, South Carolina, Fort Jackson, I think it was South Carolina. It was a while ago, but, um, 97 actually. Um, so I, I was in there and, um, I was trying to help motivate a young lady who had fallen behind in the run. And, you know, every morning you run like three or four miles or whatever it is. 
and uh, she was falling behind. And so I slowed down to help motivate her to get back into formation. And I did it not because I knew who she was or I was friends with her or I liked her or anything. It was just because we're soldiers and we're supposed to look after each other. And that's what I was always taught. And so that's what I was doing. So I, I, you know, sort of slowed up. I was like, come on, keep pushing. You're doing great. It's early, but you know, we're almost done. We're almost there. Just push a little bit harder for a little bit longer. And in my mind, I was like, okay, well, what can I do to help take her mind off the run? I was like, well, is there a boyfriend at home? Maybe he's waiting for you. Think about him, focus on him. And she was like, oh, I don't have a boyfriend. And so it immediately went from this weird moment of me saying that to motivate her to, in her opinion, me like uh, hitting on her or something. And so she latched onto me and, and we connected as friends for the rest of the time there. But it got to a point where she would do my laundry. And I mean, it, it was pretty fucking cool actually for a while. And, you know, we, we tried to get in the shiner boots, but she wouldn't do that. But, you know, she sort of adopted this role. Like I looked out for her once. And so she was taking care of me forward because of that which was awesome never gonna argue with that um and i'll never forget this it was awesome and it it actually pays off what i was just telling you about my son here is that when we were boarding onto the bus after basic training going to our advanced individual training where you actually learn your job in the army uh you're sort of standing these rank and file uh, formations and by bus and so i was marching in line up onto my bus she broke out of her rank drill sergeant's jaws hitting the floor like stunned you know seconds away from yelling at her to get back in line ran up give me a big hug and kiss like unfucking believe like i can't after basic trend like this wasn't the first day of basic where you don't know not to do that this was after and so she was so overcome with emotion at the time that she wanted to say goodbye in her own way which hey i'm not gonna argue about but uh it, it's it's just exactly what my son did so many years later and it's nice to know because I would never do that like in my mind I was trained to be a soldier so I would stand at parade rest and I would have my shoulders back my head forward and my eyes forward I would not glance uh, at the drill sergeant as he was approaching us up the ranks I would not I, I followed the rules but it's nice to know that there's people who don't. It's nice to know that those people that you can, you have a connection with in life that break those ranks. And, and it, just to be at the center of that in these two small examples, it's a really good feeling. It's, it's, it goes to show that if, if you, if you put yourself out there and you do what you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you do what you, uh, what you think is right, People are going to respond to that. So I'm, I'm raising my son the way I think he should be raised. And I, I constantly feel like I'm doing the wrong thing. And I'm, I'm not living up to what I owe him as a father. He's still an amazing human being. He's stronger than me. And that's a good feeling, you know. And it's something that I've seen just in those two examples throughout my life in people that you're connected with. And... My point is, let them know when you see that. When you, when someone makes you feel that way, let them know. 
and I'm derelict in this myself at times. I don't always open up and I'm not always honest with people in, in how I feel at the moment. But it feels good to them when you tell them. And I know for me, I've had people do that to me recently and it, it feels good. So if, if you want to show that respect and if you want to let people know how they're feeling, don't keep it up. Don't bottle it up inside you. Let them know because they're going to truly appreciate it. And it's, it's a big deal, especially when someone's an individual. That is so rare, you know? I mean, it's so rare. So, you know, put yourself out there. It's worth it, man. Uh, that's just kind of, I just want to talk about my son there for a little bit and try to pay it off in a, a good meaning. I don't know, like leave it to beaver father message or something. Um, let's go ahead and, uh, dive into the show though. Uh, recipe for luck is coming up in the devil's advocate right now. Enjoy. You are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And you are the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm an active member in the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. A lot of people call me lucky. I used to insist that I'm not. I'd start to tell them about all the work I put into things, but it quickly became apparent that people don't want to hear that. They want to believe that there's some mysterious force called luck that has been favoring me over them. Otherwise, they'd have to take responsibility for their own bad luck. But there's nothing mysterious about my accomplishments. There's tedious work involved and highly unglamorous sacrifices, plus there are embarrassing failed attempts. I could go on insisting I'm not lucky and that there's no such thing as luck, but I find it easier and more interesting to say, I am lucky. Damned lucky. I now view luck as the seemingly magical results of unseen effort. I'm lucky when I keep at it. I'm unlucky when I get lazy, short-sighted, oblivious to my surroundings, and cowardly. My luck is all under my control, and I take responsibility for it. Now, most people will never get that, but every now and then I come across somebody who isn't work-averse, and I can tell by how they speak to me that they recognize I'm doing something right and want to know what it is, so I give them my recipe for luck. Step 1. Prepare yourself for what you wish for. Step 2. Be aware of what's going on around you so you can spot opportunities. And Step 3. Have the guts to act when the time comes. Usually I get told this is great advice, but I shouldn't call it luck. Luck, a friend once told me, is a matter of chance, not action. You can't make luck. So I suggested to my friend the following. You apply for a job, and a thousand other people do as well. Chances are your resume is not even going to be read, even if you're the best qualified for the position. You took action to train up, you took action to apply, but in the end it's coming down to pure chance. If your resume gets read... You got lucky. Yes, my friend said. Exactly. But, I said, what if you know somebody at the company who can turn in your resume for you? Your chances of at least having it read increase dramatically. The additional action increases your luck. But that's not luck, my friend insisted. It's not just chance anymore. 
Well, I guess there are people who will always insist that luck is necessarily outside ourselves rather than something we create on our own. To them, luck has nothing to do with training or staying alert or acting courageously. Only when something comes to you through no effort on your part can it be said to be lucky. This kind of luck sounds an awful lot like divine providence to me. Divine providence can be influenced by crossing yourself and saying a prayer or fondling rosary beads or maybe even eating fish on Fridays. Similarly, luck can be influenced by nailing horseshoes on the wall or facing three-legged money toads away from the door or just being damn careful not to break a mirror. But surely anyone listening to this podcast is too sophisticated to buy into these silly superstitions. I mean, hang the horseshoes if you really enjoy Americana, or get the money toad if you think it looks cool, but indulge in these things as a whimsy. Don't get all fearful and compulsively throw salt over your shoulder just because you spilled some. But not everyone who believes in luck as its own separate thing sees it as a force. To some, it's just a word that describes an attribute that either one has or one has not. In that sense, it's kind of like grace. God chose to grant grace to some people and not others. I don't know who grants luck. Probably a leprechaun. Anyway, it's still something outside your control, and it's still something that has some degree of power over your life. And what good does that do? Should people born with no luck just curl up and die? Should people born with all the luck in the world just kick back, relax, and wait for the spoils to come to them? It seems without action this luck isn't going to manifest itself, so why not just focus on the action? I mean, I can't prove that this external luck that others suggest is the one true luck doesn't exist any more than I can prove there's no God. I will say this, though. The ratio between a person's perceived sense of responsibility and their perceived sense of control has been linked to stress. The chronic bad stress, mind you, not the good motivating stress. And this is a well-established scientific fact. Google it if you've never heard it before. My point is this. I don't think it's healthy to take on the responsibility of being your own god while simultaneously believing yourself to be at the mercy of some possibly fictitious external force beyond your control. There are enough forces beyond our control, like hurricanes and viruses, no need to add to the list, especially if you're going to end up exerting your will to try to bring about a change in this possibly fictitious force. So for my part, I prefer to use my own brand of luck. I create it. I control it. And the great thing about taking control of your own luck is the productive cycle it forms. Let me illustrate by way of example. Let's say you're looking to marry Mr. Wright. So you prepare yourself by reading The Satanic Witch, learning how to cook, donating all your fashionably abominable clothing to someone you don't like, and buying a few nice skirts and heels for yourself. You then start practicing how to walk and sit while practicing lesser magic on your co-workers, your bank teller, the checkout clerk at the grocery store, and anyone else you meet. Hell, you start flaunting your stuff even when nobody's looking, just to make it a habit. Well, doesn't it stand to reason that if you're working it constantly that you're going to be attracting men while you're at it? So just by preparing, you're actually bringing about the opportunities you're preparing for. In fact, in this example, practicing lesser magic requires watching people's reactions, and so that makes it that much more likely that you're going to spot these opportunities when they come about. The effort of watching is built right in. So say you've spotted your opportunity. Now you've got to seize the day. How much easier is it going to be to invite a guy over for dinner when you've been practicing cooking? I mean, in the days before the date, you can't be fretting over what to make. You'll probably need that time to study up on the guy's favorite sports team or some TV show he likes so you have something to talk about. 
So you see, the preparation not only creates opportunities, it not only builds confidence to act on them, it also makes it easier to accommodate for these sorts of unpredictable specifics to the situation. But what if your chance comes and you're not quite ready? I mean, what if chance brings along a great guy and you're still kind of a novice to the whole witchcraft thing? Perhaps you meet the guy at a friend's party and now you can't wow him with your cooking like you planned, and then it becomes painfully obvious you have nothing in common to talk about. You may fall flat on your face. If you do, are you going to chalk it up to bad luck? Are you going to say it was something beyond your control? Will you insist you never stood a chance? It simply wasn't meant to be? Or will you be self-directed enough to understand what went wrong and fix it? Seizing opportunities doesn't guarantee success, but every failure tells us where our preparation was lacking. As I said, this is a productive cycle. When you fail, return to preparing yourself with the added knowledge of your current strengths and weaknesses. As you do, wait for your next chance, understanding that while you can improve your odds, you are still waiting for a chance. And lastly, when you see it, seize it. That's how you make your own luck. Wasn't that simple? Psst. Hey, 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 come here. Psst. What? Huh? Me? Do I know you? Hey, you're religious, man, aren't you? No more than anyone else. Listen, listen, I got a secret. It's, it's been eating me up, and I gotta share it with someone. Get the fuck out of here, kid. I don't know you. No, listen, man. It's about you. It's about your life. You're about to have what, what alcoholics refer to as your moment of clarity. What are you talking about? Are you okay, son? Sins are indisposable. Every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. They are only reliable weapons of power. The priest lives upon sins. It's it's necessary to him that there be sinning. Who the fuck are you, kid? I'm your infernal informant. <laughs> I gotta be honest. Sometimes I don't think I deserve to do this show. I thought that was an amazing uh, verbal essay. Right? I mean, that, that was awesome. She should be doing this show, not me. Alright, so let's talk a little politicking. Let's talk some politics! Um, okay, so in this, in this Infernal Informant, uh, the first article here is Wider Problems Found at IRS. Probe says tax agency used sweeping criteria to scrutinize conservative groups. This was posted on the 12th of May. By John McKinnon and Sioban Hughes. The Internal Revenue Service's scrutiny of conservative groups went beyond those with Tea Party or Patriot in their names, as the agency admitted Friday. To also include ones worried about government spending, debt, or taxes, and even ones that lobbied to make America a better place to live, according to new details of a government probe. Excuse me. The investigation also revealed that high-ranking IRS officials knew as early as mid-2011 that conservative groups were being inappropriately targeted. Nearly a year before then-IRS Commissioner Douglas Shulman, Shulman <laughs> told the Congressional Committee the agency wasn't targeting conservative groups. The new disclosures are likely to inflame a widening controversy over IRS handling of dozens of applications by Tea Party, Patriot, and other conservative groups for tax-exempt status. The details emerged from disclosures to congressional investigators by the Treasury Inspector 
General for Tax Administration. The findings, which were reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, didn't make clear who came up with the idea to give extra scrutiny to those conservative groups. The Inspector General's office has been conducting an audit of the IRS's handling of the applications process and is expected to release a report this week. The audit follows complaints last year by numerous Tea Party and other conservative groups that they have been signaled or uh, singled out and subjected to excessive and inappropriate questioning. Many groups said that they were asked for lists from their donors and other sensitive information. On Sunday, a government official said the report will note that IRS officials told investigators that no one outside the IRS was involved in developing the criteria the agency now acknowledges were flawed. On Friday, Louis Lerner, head of the IRS Tax Exempt uh, Organizations Division, said the agency was apologetic for what she termed absolutely inappropriate actions by lower-level workers. She said those workers had selected some conservative groups for extra scrutiny to determine whether their applications should be approved. She said that they had picked groups for extra scrutiny according to whether they had Tea Party or Patriot in their names, among other criteria. Ms. Lerner came to the IRS in 20, or 2001 from the Federal Election Commission and assumed her current position in 2006. IRS officials said Sunday that Mrs. Lerner wasn't available for comment and she didn't respond to an email request. GOP lawmakers stepped up their criticism on Sunday. The bottom line is IRS officials used keywords to go after conservatives. Representative Daryl Isaiah, Republican California, said Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press, there has to be accountability for people who did it, and quite frankly, there's got to be accountability for people who were telling lies about it being done. Some Democrats also voiced criticism. I'm concerned about that, says Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat California, also on NBC. Somebody made the decision that they would give extra scrutiny to this particular group, and I think we have to understand why. The IRS said over the weekend it is in the process of independently confirming the dates mentioned in the timeline of events contained in the Investigator General report, but we're, uh, we believe Inspector General's timeline is correct. The IRS said the report supports its view that missteps weren't politically motivated and were limited to low-level workers. The IRS also said the report reflected the IRS's senior leadership was not aware of this level of specific details. At the time of a March 2012 hearing where Mr. Shulman denied the targeting of conservative groups, Mr. Shulman, who no longer works the IRS, declined to comment. The new details suggest the agency workers were examining statements in applications for tax-exempt status to determine whether groups had political leanings. Tax-exempt social welfare, social welfare groups organized under Section 501c4 of the Internal Revenue Code were allowed to engage in some political activity, but the primary focus of their efforts must remain promoting social welfare. The social welfare activity can include lobbying and advocating for issues in legislation, but not outright political campaign activity. But some of the rules leave room for the IRS officials to make judgment calls and probe individual groups for further information. Organizing as such a group is desirable, not just because such entities typically don't have to pay taxes, but also because they generally don't have to identify their donors. IRS officials said last week they focused reviewed of conservative groups was initiated by lower-level civil servants of the IRS Cincinnati office, not by political appointees in Washington, and that it wasn't politically motivated. They said it stemmed from a misguided effort to centralize review of a growing number of applications for tax-exempt 501c4 status. But questions continue to swirl about the failure of IRS officials to disclose the problems until the Inspector General's report was about to become public. The timeline continued, I'm sorry, contained in the draft, 
report indicates the IRS scrutiny of Tea Party and other conservative groups began as early as 2010 and came to the attention of Ms. Lerner, the head of the tax-exempt organization's division, at least by the following year. The report's timeline indicates that the criteria were changed to be more neutral in July 2011, and Ms. Lerner raised concerns. The criteria for heightened scrutiny continued to evolve over the next year or so, even as complaints for the Tea Party groups and questions from GOP lawmakers mounted over IRS inquiries to various groups in their, about their activities. Letters from Ms. Lerner in April and May 2012 respond to questions by Republican lawmakers made no mention of the problems that had surfaced in the IRS unit. According to the draft report in April 24 and 25 last year, officials in Mrs. Lerner's office were reviewing troubling questions. They had been asked about organizations including the names of donors. Ms. Lerner's April 26th letter to Ms. Issa, the chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, said that there are instances where donor information may be needed, such as when the application presents possible issues of private benefit. The report indicates that in 2010 and 2011, some IRS workers weren't singling out groups because their names contained certain words, as IRS officials suggested on Friday, but appeared to be probing for indications of political interests or leanings. According to the report, by June 2011, some IRS specialists were probing applications using the following criteria. Issues include government spending, government debt, or taxes, education of the public by advocacy lobbying to make America a better place to live, statements in the case file criticize how the country is being run. Okay, so my take on this is when it comes to politics, and that's the only reason why you're going to be making one of these um, 501c4 tax-exempt organizations is to uh, promote your political agenda uh, through social welfare. I don't think there should be any tax-exempt organizations. I don't think this church should be tax-exempt, and I don't think any social organization, especially if you have political power, if you can lobby Congress and representatives at the Senate, you should not be tax-exempt. And you should always, always be forced to show who your donors are. Transparency is the only way to keep even the most mediocre amount of um, transparency possible. Wait, <laughs> what did I just say? <laughs> the only way that we can keep the tiniest bit of honesty in politics, and I don't want 100% honesty, but I want a little bit, because that's the only way that you can truly hold your representatives accountable. The only way that we can have a little bit is with transparency. The only way is to get money as far away from the process as possible. And right now it's steeped in it. So there's no such thing as transparency. There's only money and the response to it. And that is not in the best interest of the individual members of this society. So get rid of the 501c4s. Let the IRS continue to probe them. Let them ask the questions. I have no problem with it. I encourage it. And normally I see the IRS as the bad guy, but I'm going to take their back on this one. Even though it was low-level people, even though this is not a real issue, even though this was a manufactured problem by people who want to claim that they are being infringed upon, conservatives. It was only a few low-level people in a Cincinnati office, and it was stopped. No one else knew about it. There's no conspiracy. I know you want to feel 
like the world is against you because let's be honest you're on the wrong side of history on virtually every um and i'm speaking mainly to republicans here on virtually every issue that's okay everyone's on the wrong side of history at some point um it's what you do with it when you realize it stop trying to dig yourselves in dig yourselves out no one's trying to shut down people for being good americans no one's trying to shut down people for trying to better america but we should be taking a hard and heavy look at people influencing our political futures there shouldn't be the wizard of oz behind a curtain let's let's get a little transparency here and the only way to do that is to continue investigations is to continue uh ceasing holding up and outright in my opinion abolishing any tax exempt status if you're in this country operating on a political bent you should be taxed because you're a part of this country tax every bit of it and we'll see how long these organizations last i mean it's all about making money in the long run you're trying to influence political leanings so that you can have your way and there's nothing wrong with that that's that's sort of how our politics has always gone and well literally that's how it's always gone um, and I'm not, I'm not saying this because I think there should be some overarching, everyone feels good working together, you know, weird communist bullshit agenda. But I do think that our current system is holding back entrepreneurs that are capable of making money, that are capable of doing good things. And our system right now is flawed and broken, um, virtually completely. So we have to do everything we can to try to set it back on track, meaning, those of merit can succeed it's not that way right now you may think it is but you're deluding yourself it's not and just just the process of getting rid of tax exempt statuses is one step in the right direction to putting us back to a more uh balanced and tolerant position as far as um economics and success are concerned opportunity is concerned so that's really all i had on that one uh, and the second one is actually kind of short too here uh, and this is rtt news gates u.s military action in syria would be mistake and this is posted again today robert gates who served as secretary of defense for both george w bush and barack obama said on sunday that direct u.s military intervention in syria would be unpredictable and a messy mistake speaking on cbs face of the nation gates comments were in sharp contrast to the growing number of voices in washington who are calling for the use of force in helping excuse me rebels overthrow the government of bashar al-assad in a civil war that now exceeds two years we overestimated our ability to determine outcomes gates said caution particularly in terms of arming these groups and in terms of u.s military involvement is in order anyone who says it's going to be clean it's going to be neat you can establish safe zones and it'll be just swell well most wars aren't that way President Obama is still weighing options regarding Syria. Gates also warned of direct action against Iran, which continues to strive for nuclear weapons. If you do hit them, then I think the consequences of their retaliation could spin out of control, Gates said. And this is by the RTT staff writer. Okay, so if you haven't been paying attention, Syria has been oppressing its people for quite some time. And because America is the uh, great backer of all uh, anti-tyrannical and anti-American um, sentiments or, or aggressor of anti-American sentiments, I should say. We 
are the world's police. We like to get involved in other people's shit. <clears throat> Especially if it means that we can come out clean on the other side. So we're looking at Syria, who has been oppressing its people for quite some time. And because we want to say, you know, we're not just focusing on Iran and Iraq because of their obvious oil uh, uh, caches, and uh, we're not just um, uh, doing this for self-interest. We actually care about the whole world, something I completely disagree with. We, specifically Barack Obama, made a statement saying that if chemical weapons were used against the Syrian people by its leadership, then that's a line in the sand that we would have to address, meaning the U.S. would have to, at some level, be uh, drawn into this conflict uh, of the Syrian people against Syria uh, leadership. Well, that's happened. And when... Barack Obama said it, and probably when his uh, his um, staff told him to say it, <clears throat> they didn't think that it would happen. And, and here's why. <clears throat> why you would say it if you didn't think it would happen. There's no reason to go into Syria. I mean, let, let's divorce ourselves of this idea that America cares about the health and welfare of all human beings on this planet, because it's a complete lie. We don't. We never have. I mean, there are genocides going on right now that we just ignore completely. <clears throat> we said that because Barack Obama wanted to sound tough in a situation where he didn't think that there would be any repercussions for sounding tough. We wanted to add weight to what has been seen up to that point as sort of back-dealing and um, kissing uh, foreign ambassadors' asses. Something Obama's actually pretty damn good at. Diplomacy, it's kind of essential for a state to run. But, um, yeah, we never thought that they would do that. And so he said it with confidence, saying, we will react if you do something as ridiculous as this. Until they did it. Now, since there's no reason to go in there, there's no oil, there's no cash crops that we can uh, really make any money off of. And we don't really care about the people. That's, that's all smoke and mirrors. We don't want to go in. And that's why he hasn't done anything as of yet about it. We're... And you, it's always great because there's always this sort of tiptoeing with the administration. Where, well, we, we, we need to be uh, absolutely sure that chemical weapons were actually used and not all of our informants are saying that it was as bad as they initially said it was and not everyone's agreeing at the extensive nature of the chemical weapons. They're sort of, <laughs> it's like, it's like, hey, meet me at the flagpole at three. I'm going to kick your ass. And then at three o'clock, like, well, my mom, she's going to be taking me to soccer. I've got this, I mean, He-Man's going to be on in a little bit. I don't want to miss that. That's going to be really good. And, I mean, you understand, right? <laughs> You're sort of making excuses not to have to go meet him at the flagpole. Worst part is, as a country, I don't think we could stand another all-out aggressive action on another country. I mean, we couldn't do it. Our people are tired. Even Here's, uh, here's something that... I say our people, our military. Um, we could we could support them through drones, and I fully believe we are now, to be quite honest. We've been sending money and we've been sending weapons to the rebels opposing the uh, Assad regime for quite some time. So it's not like we haven't been involved. We have. Admittedly, we've been involved. It's just how involved do we want to be? No one wants ground troops. 
at period. No one wants to. We do not want to have another Iraq. We do not want another Afghanistan. But the American people, though they haven't had to sacrifice for the wars that we've been engaged in, are tired of war. And so it would be, and you know, to be fair, in all transparency, Barack Obama doesn't give a damn about another election. It's impossible. But he doesn't want to taint his party, and he doesn't want to taint his legacy, more importantly, with a war on his way out. So he's going to do everything he can to stay out of Syria. And I personally think that we we should stay the hell out of it. I, I understand why we want to present ourselves in a strong-arm fashion, because a lot of people respect that, and they come to expect it from America. So you don't want to disappoint the the existing dictators, certainly the ones that we put in power oppressing their people. Um, but we also can't be assured of the outcome. And as we saw with um, uh, Hezbollah gaining strength in uh, the ousting of, of leaders, we can never... We can never guarantee that pro-American organizations will come into power by us toppling the regime. And with that live experience at our backs, we have to be careful about how we move forward. I think it was easier a few years back, but now that American people are a little more savvy, now that the, the consequences are, are um, broadcast so prevalently, now that the transparency in action, you have um, Anonymous and you have, uh, um, oh geez, what is the name of that organization? You just have these groups that are releasing uh, secret information now publicly. Now that there is this small amount of transparency, it strikes fear in the minds of those in leadership positions. And so they have to toe the line a little bit more. Um, let's leave Syria, I don't give a damn if they're using chemical weapons, let's leave them to their own uh, destiny, even though I don't believe in destiny. Let's let them fight for their own freedom or suffer under the yoke of their dictator because they're too weak. I don't care. What I'm concerned about are American lives, to a small degree. More importantly, the future of our economic um, status as a country. And going to war affects that greatly, meaning it has impact on my children's success and more immediately my success. So I don't want a war because of personal gain, and that may sound bad, but that's how I see it. And Syria would be a huge mistake. I agree with Gates, and uh, I think Barack Obama does too, and that's why he's taking so long to come to terms with making a formal announcement, a, a formal decision. But, you know, that's going to be where I'm going to end this Infernal Informant. Uh, I know it was long. Thank you for sitting through me. And I know I'm at the hour mark, but I still have the Creature Feature with Brian Moore and the HP Lovecraft Bronze Bus Project. So if you'll kick it for another half an hour, you'll be enjoying it. Uh, see you there. you like big band swing and jazz then join me david ingram 
and my zombie goldfish co-host Igor oh, hello. on Lambert's Basement every week where we time travel via nostalgia taking you to a golden age of music only available on RadioFreeSatan.com You're after us. You know we're still in here at terrortransmission.com. You're after the place. You don't know why. You just remember. Remember that you want to be in here. Remember that you want the greatest horror commentary podcast ever. What the hell are they? They're us, that's all. When there's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddad used to tell me. You knew Mukumba? Hmm. Voodoo. My granddad was a priest in Falcon Crest. He used to tell me, when there's no more room in horror podcast hell, the fiends walk to us. Terrortransmission.com What's this show called? What do you mean, what is it called? You know, what's the name of the show? What, like the title? What's the title of the show? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, what's the big deal? What's the title of the show? Look, it should be good enough for you and for any of you other generation Y's or X's or W's or Z's or, or, or whatever fancy letter you're, you're sitting on today to, to realize that it's not about what the title is. It's not about... When I was your kid, there's only one thing that we had growing up. When we wanted to watch a show, we just turned on the telly on Saturday mornings and you know what we got? Do you, know, do you have any idea what we got? No, I have no idea. Why are you freaking out? Every single Saturday. And we didn't know what shows were, what, what titles were, or, or what... We had no choices on what to watch. We were stuck with the Creature Feature. And so are you. Welcome to another Creature Feature. I am being joined by Brian Moore. I am very excited to speak with him again. And this is actually something that we've done, I think... I think every year I've had this podcast is <laughs> I've reached out to you and dragged you onto my show. Uh, but you've been gracious to come, uh, and I truly appreciate it. How are you, Brian? Oh, I'm doing fine, Adam. How are you tonight, bud? Very, very good. Uh, so this particular time that we're uh, speaking, we're going to be focusing on the new project that you have going on. And it's actually been going on, I, I think, for a couple months, but it's, the concept has been with you for quite some time. I mean, I, I believe the last time we even spoke uh, on Nine Cents... Um, it was even brought up in sort of a, an idea basis. So uh, if we can sort of jump into this in just a second about the HP Lovecraft bus project, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, but quickly, I just want to give you a little uh, a day-belated happy birthday. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yesterday I, I turned the big 5-0, man. I, I made it in one piece without breaking any bones and still have all my teeth. And uh, there's a lot more silver on the sides, but it's easier to blame my kids. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it's weird, the idea of, of turning 50. Because, you know, when you're a kid, 50 might as well be 100. And when you get there, you're like, well, I don't feel like 100, you know. But it, it's kind of this weird thing that... Some days you feel, you know, old as the rock of Gibraltar, and other days you feel like, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm grateful I made it this far in life without screwing up too much, and, uh, you know, you, you're grateful for the good stuff that comes with it, and there, there actually is a lot of good stuff that comes with uh, getting older, you know, no one, uh, you can officially be a mean old man anytime you want, no one... <laughs> 
No one calls you a jerk for it. <laughs> it's it's your, uh, you can pull the old band card, but yeah, you know, it's kind of cool. So thank you. That's really sweet of you. But yesterday was actually um, a really good birthday. First good one in a long time. Just got, you know, so many calls from family and friends. And uh, uh, amazingly, I, I wasn't able to take the day off. I mean, this is sort of a, a ham-fisted segue into the uh you know, our conversation about the Lovecraft bus project, but yeah, it, it's going in, you know, such sort of full speed ahead mode that I was actually in the workshop pretty much all day and had to make myself stop to just sort of go out to dinner and, uh, you know, enjoy a little filet mignon and a cabernet. But yeah, it's, it's amazing just, uh, the momentum this thing has. So I didn't really get to enjoy my, my birthday on the, on the beach or going for a drive or anything like that. It was, uh, just work, 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 man. So, but thank you. Turning 50 is, uh, hey, you know, I could be doing a lot worse. It beats the alternative. <laughs> I got to tell you, you, you've got some, some, I don't know, secret potion or something, because you certainly do not look 50. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know I don't know if you're the same way, but whenever I think of ages, I have this idea in my head of what that age looks like. Uh, you, don't, you don't fit the profile, my man. You look good. Oh. Thanks, dude. Yeah, when I think of 50, I think of some stinking old man on a bus stop somewhere. But yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know what it is? I mean, part of it, you know, it's my joke always is, you know, if you get too much silver, you have a date with Ms. Clairol and you dye the hair or, you know, other things. It's just just common sense. Like you, you're, you're ripped to shreds and you have two kids oh, and you ought to look at a hell of a lot worse than you do. But it's like, I think you're, you're, you're smart enough to, you know, you, at some point you take care of yourself. You, you know, you gotta know when, when you should get your, your, your ass in the gym or you should, you know, pull away from the table or, you know, lay off the, the purple Jesus, as they say, you know, just, uh, all that stuff. It's just, again, it's, uh, like, uh, you know, good old Dr. LeVay said, indulgence and, not compulsion. It's just having enough common sense not to uh, overeat or overdrink or you know smoke too much or whatever. It's just taking care of yourself. So, so thanks. Uh, believe me, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I don't think I'm fooling anyone. But the ladies keep beating down my porch door. So, hey, you cannot <laughs> argue with that. Well, I keep telling myself that anyway. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the HP Lovecraft Bronze Bust Project. Uh, what? Where did this come from? What was the concept of this? Well, uh, you know, just I've always been a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. A lot of my sculptures from my business Arkham Studios are certainly Lovecraft pieces. Uh, Cthulhu, you know, Cthulhu always sells. It's, you know, anytime uh, I thought about should I sculpt another Cthulhu or not, because there's so many other good ones out there that Randy Bowen and Stephen Hickman have done. Just really great stuff that, you know, I'll never sculpt something, you know, on the level that those guys do. But it's one of those things that sell, you know, people just can't get enough Cthulhu. I don't get it, but they like it. So, so did a couple of, you know, Cthulhu's, a couple of uh, versions of Lovecraft himself, uh, Matt Arab, Abdul Hazred, and, and it really seems to, um, to kind of sell well. You know, over the years I've gotten this sort of uh, nickname, the Satanic Sculptor, for, you know, the obvious reasons, just doing, you know, things with the Church of Satan, like the LeVay piece and the Satan bust and the newer Lucifer bust. And, uh, you know, next up, if I've actually got time this year, I'll finish out the Four Crown Princes of Hell, which oh, will be, be awesome. Belial and uh, Leviathan. Yeah, I mean, I want them. I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to put them in my own ritual chamber. And it seems like, a, you know, some other folks would like them too. So that's, it would be nice to sort of finish that Satanic Quartet. But beyond being the Satanic Sculptor, Lovecraft is really this... Um, it's a market that never goes away, and, and it shocks me because, you know, he's not like 
Edgar Allan Poe. Everyone has heard the name Edgar Allan Poe. But Lovecraft is still kind of a niche market, but that niche market, the fan base is so loyal. They just, you know, whether it's comic books or films or bands or sculptures or paintings or, you know, people writing the vein of Lovecraft, they can't get enough. So anyway, where the Lovecraft Bust uh, project started, and, and I'll apologize to anyone listening, if you hear strange sounds, I've got this puppy named Kilgore <laughs> chewing on my shoes, and I'm trying to get him off while we're talking, so I'll apologize if I sound like the tentacles of Cthulhu were approaching. It's actually just this silly dog chewing on my shoe. So anyway, um, it, it actually, uh, like the old saying goes, uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. Uh, I came up with the idea when I uh, moved from Los Angeles to the American Midwest, I had some uh, freelance toy jobs lined up. And the first week that I was here, every single one of them fell through. And that was really scary because, you know, it's I'm just a guy who's trying to make a living like anyone else, and I didn't really know what to do. You know, I'd bought my first home, and I certainly didn't move out here to fail, so I was trying to come up with ideas of, you know, what I'd like to do and what could I do. And, uh, you know, I thought of Lovecraft. And, you know, part of the, being an artist is you always want to do good work. You want to do good stuff. You know, you don't want to cheese it out too bad. So I was thinking, well, should I do another Lovecraft bust? And, you know, the thing is, like with Arkham Studios, so much of the time you, you get caught up in order fulfillment where you're at the workshop, you know, casting back orders or, you know, wrapping them in bubble wrap and put them in the boxes going to the post office. That takes a, a lot of hours out, out of every day, so much so where you can't really generate new work as fast as you'd like to. So I was started thinking, you know, how can I kind of maximize my time better, you know, to put it in that corporate sort of speak. And I started thinking it'd be nice to one day, you know, have a, uh, a, a real art show and a real art gallery, you know, one of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Satanists will know uh, Coop. Uh, mm -hmm. is, he's been a friend for a lot of years. And right before I left, he had a great uh, gallery showing at um, the Corey Helford Gallery in L.A. I think it was his parts, was it Parts with Appeal? Um, I might not have the name of the show right. It might be a, a different show. But I had seen him the week before I left. And uh, he really said that his career had kind of shifted in doing more fine art, where he's still doing the same type of art that he always has, you know, very much... Uh, hot rod themes, satanic themes, uh, you know, 50s monster, kaiju Japanese monsters. Mm -hmm. But the people in there were paying a lot of money. They weren't just people buying t-shirts and posters for 20 bucks a pop. They were people who were spending thousands of dollars on these paintings. And uh, he had given me a lot of good advice how to shift a career from going to, um, you know, stuff like pop culture items like t-shirts and posters into selling fine art, making a lot more money. So I had that in the back of my mind. Anyway, I started thinking about this Lovecraft bust project, and around the same time, I just thought, well, you know, I'll sculpt a life-size bust and find a bronze foundry and sell it somehow. But I didn't really have a, a good game plan. I wasn't thinking that far ahead. Around about the same time, uh, Kevin Slaughter, who we all know, had uh, run a Kickstarter for the Spanish version of the Satanic Scriptures, and I can never say it right, so I'm not going to destroy <laughs> the user. I, I just can't. I'm like less escritura. I'm I'm gonna screw it up. So it's the Spanish version, uh, Peter Gilmore's book, Satanic Scriptures. Anyway, Kevin gave me a lot of really, really, really good advice about what it takes to run a Kickstarter, and that, uh, like the old saying goes in Lord of the Rings films, one doesn't just walk into mortar. One does not just launch a Kickstarter. It takes months and months and months of planning. So before I really tackled that, I, st I, I got some prices on a bronze foundry, and then the long 
process, the, the longest part of this whole thing, was I started calling places in Providence, libraries, public parks, um, Brown University, all these places that I thought would be very pleased to accept a free bronze gift of public oh, work, yeah. and got turned down by every single one of them. What? I, yeah, and here's where here's where Joel for yeah I, mean, I couldn't believe it because again you know who Lovecraft is I know mm -hmm. who Lovecraft is we have a lot of the similar interests but the people who run these institutions had no idea I mean the response was always who when really? I said yeah really I said well he's this Providence author he died in the 30s he was a master of horror fiction and they you know most of this was done over the phone or email and you can just picture them shaking their head just they just didn't get it uh my, Unbelievable. my yeah they they just didn't get it and it took them forever to come back with a, a definite no we don't want it my favorite response was I, I i won't mention the name of the the very public local sort of institution it, it's a you know run by the city of providence there's a lot of organizations but i actually got this uh lady who seemed very nice on the phone you know I gave her the pitch explained what I wanted to do and uh, she said she was almost like you know the character Lumberg in Office Space remember yeah that's what she sounded like she was like Ooh, Lovecraft huh well mm, right okay right here's it, yeah she really sounded like that and she basically gave me this, she said here, here's the deal. He Lovecraft was a racist, and I went, ah, shoot, here it comes. What? Yeah, <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> absolutely nothing. I mean, for a hardcore Lovecraft fan, if you read some of his private letters to his friends that were published, he says a lot of racial things. You know, the that, '30s, everyone was. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Mean... And so many people today in, in 2013 really want to judge those people who were from another time where, yeah, whether the attitude was right or wrong, it was the prevalent attitude. And it wasn't like Lovecraft was in a Ku Klux Klan robe lynching black people in a field. He wasn't. He was voicing a private opinion, you know, to, uh, you know, friends in, in letters that he thought no one would ever see. But decades later, a lot of people have seen him. So we're, you know... I, I was a little worried going into that that the racial aspect would stop people cold, and this time it did. And this very nice lady who sounded like Lumberg from Office Space mm -hmm. said, ooh, right, okay, mm Lovecraft, he was that racist, wasn't he? And I'm like, well, uh, and I didn't really know what to say. And she goes, Brian, let me put it to you this way. We're all about diversity and multiculturalism here in this <laughs> local office, and immediately I'm gone. I... Just hang up the phone yeah. now. I know <laughs> the checks in the mail. I know what's coming. So, and she was very nice to her credit, but she said, but this is what threw me. And again, I understand if they are about pushing diversity and multiculturalism, not wanting to elevate, you know, a statue in their eyes would have been like Nathan Bedford Forrest or, you know, even someone on a lesser level like Jack London, who people accused of being racist, but he was a great author. Anyway, she said the week before she had turned down a group who wanted to pay for a billboard of Walt Whitman, the poet. And I said, why'd you want to turn down a billboard of Walt Whitman? And she said, just as plain as you and I are talking, well, Brian, it's like this, okay? I thought he looked like a homeless person and he should be shop cart. I'm serious. She and she said no. You know, this is a billboard to get people to celebrate Providence's rich history. But she said no to the great, iconic poet Walt Whitman because he looked like, you know, 
a bum, a homeless person. Oh and I, I just, just believe my like, man, I can't win. So, you know, after getting one no after another, it's hard <laughs> to hang on to the attitude that every no brings you a step closer to a yes. So mm. eventually, um, I just, I decided to stop trying to go through the front door and I went through the back door. A friend of mine named Niels Hobbs is running this Lovecraft event called the Necronomicon. Kind of a clever play on words, and yeah. that's this August. And I called him. I didn't really know him, and I just said, uh, I mean, he's a friend now, but he wasn't at that time. And I explained him the situation, just like you and I are talking. He goes, you know, I know this lady at the Providence Athenium Library that Lovecraft actually went to. And I'm like, really? Can, can you make a call or an email? And he goes, hang on. You know what, hold on, just let, let me hang up, let me call her. 20 minutes later, I get a phone call from Allison Maxell, the executive director at the Providence Athenium Library. Hi, Brian, Niels called me, told me your situation. We're all Lovecraft fans here. We'd love to take it. And I'm like, oh, I felt awesome. like crying. I'm like, oh, my God, there's someone in Providence that not only knows who Lovecraft is, but actually likes Lovecraft. And, you know, again, these days in, in this day and age, it seems like so often you know, it's not cool to like Lovecraft. If you say you like Lovecraft, you've got to apologize for it in the same sentence, where when I got into him, you could just like him because he was a cool author. Now people say, well, I like Lovecraft. Oh, but he was a racist, and they get real quiet. And I'm like, come on, when when did he stop being a great writer? I don't get it. So part of, when you do something that's sort of high profile, or at least it becomes high profile, like this project has, and I don't say that in an egocentric way, I, I've been very humble about it. I didn't expect it to take off the way that it has. But there are people that, you know, who aren't your mom or who aren't your friends who will have their honest opinion about it, good or bad. And there's one, excuse me, there's one guy who's just railing that this is, you know, symbolic of America's racism and Brian Moore is a racist <laughs> for doing this. I'm like, come on, really? It's like, I'm a Lovecraft geek. You know, I just want to put up a cool bronze and if I'm lucky, I might, you know, you know, get a, you know, a, a, a better reputation as an artist out of it. And if I'm, if there's really enough money left over, I might actually pay a couple of bills with it, you know, and, it, you know, it's just for good. But some people don't want to see it that way. But this guy was actually the one who said, I felt victimized by reading Lovecraft's literature. It's like, the guy died in 1937. How do you feel victimized? But people, there's just some people out there whose favorite hobby seems to be having a chip on their shoulder and there's there's nothing you can do about it. But what, what does go hand in hand, and I don't mean to be jabbering on about it because no, I, right. I know I am, <laughs> but um, one thing that uh, I, I've always had, I'm a classic car fan, especially Cadillacs, and there's this fantastic ad that you anyone can look it up on Google called, it was a, a 1914 Cadillac ad that they put in a magazine called The Penalty of Leadership. And it's, it's not even a photograph of the cars. It's a paragraph about what it means to be a leader or at least being willing to make a risk to do something that's meaningful, like, like you when you created Nine Cents. thing is, you know when you do something very public like what you're doing, you can't please everyone. Most people dig what you're doing, but there's always going to be someone out there who maybe wants to do a podcast that isn't as good as yours and and, and maybe they know it so what what do they do they start tearing yours down mm -hmm. and that's the penalty of leadership when you really work your tail off to make something good and genuine genuinely sort of uh, you know kind of like a high quality level 
there's going to be people pissing on it, basically. Um, and that's what that whole Cadillac penalty of leadership ad is about. When you put something out there publicly and do your best, someone's going to start railing about it. And, of course, that's what's happened. I mean, what the, the funny thing was um, once we hit our goal in Kickstarter, and I'm sort of getting ahead of ourselves, uh, you know, the imitators just came crawling out of the woodwork. And that's when it goes into you know, you don't just launch a Kickstarter. You've got to plan this thing for months in advance because the more work and preparation you put into it beforehand, yeah. obviously it's going to pay off. So You mentioned about the immense preparation that it takes to successfully do uh, accomplish a Kickstarter. And I absolutely 100% believe you. But, I mean, you were... Uh, you were sort of gentle when you were touching on it, but you have been incredibly successful with this Kickstarter, and it's it's really fantastic. Uh, racist or not, I think he is an accomplished <laughs> author, and he deserves you know a, a notable a notable piece assigned to his name. So, I mean, I'm I'm looking at the bust page right now, and if you go to Kickstarter.com and or if you just Google uh, HP Lovecraft Bronze Bust Project, you'll run across this, and there's a Facebook page for it as well with tons of updates, but. I mean, your first goal, uh, it was like thirty thousand, right? Yep. And and when did you when did you meet that? Yeah, I think it was a little over twenty four hours. Unreal, dude. I don't get it. I I, Just... I I mean, I'm telling you. I mean, I've been living with this project for over a year. I still can't believe how goddamn lucky I am. That's what it comes down to. No matter how much work you put into it, it's like the old saying, you know, goes, you run it up the flagpole and see if anyone salutes. And I knew I could do the prep work and I could sculpt a neat bust and I could, you know, create a Facebook page and build an audience, which is a full-time job in itself, but that's where it starts. Yeah. But you don't know, it's like throwing a birthday party for yourself and hoping people come. They might not. And the the whole time, I mean, for the two months prior to when we launched the, the campaign, I say we because there is a team of half a dozen people working on this. You know, some are, are cool with being publicly acknowledged and some people want to be under the radar because it's that's their choice and I respect it. So I don't want anyone to think I'm a glory hog by saying this is my project because it's certainly my idea, but I could not do it by myself without, you know, half a dozen other people really busting their ass every single day. And and for the record, the last two months of my life have been 18-hour days. I mean, I, I'm out of bed at 8 in the morning. I'm up till midnight every single day cultivating it. And like LeVay, it goes back to LeVay, LeVay's thing of lesser magic. Um, you, you know, when people sort of... Uh, you know, lamb. You know, sort of yearn for the days of when they read about Anton Lavey in the '40s, working in the carnival, and how romantic that that notion must be. And people wish those days were here. They are alive and well. I'm telling you, we may not have an actual canvas and sawdust-covered midway, but what we have is Facebook land. And everyone who's selling something, whether it's their art or their band or their T-shirts or whatever on Facebook, we are all carnies on the virtual midway and how well we do depends on how well we're we're a talker on the bally and the job is to turn the tip from that midway get the dime out of their pocket and get them into the tent and that's what's going on with this Lovecraft thing the bus project because it's everything is a carefully laid out strategy and some things do evolve that we didn't uh, see coming but you roll with it you adapt to change waking up every day just my chest would pound like oh god this isn't gonna work what am i doing i need to get a real job what what's wrong with me this is a gamble i'm not being paid 
you know, all, all the insecurity and doubt that can happen does. Yeah. And you, no matter how much work you put into it, no one may throw a dime at the thing. But they did in droves, and it hasn't stopped. I mean, as uh, right before uh, you and I sort of rang each other up, I took a look at we're about to hit fifty thousand dollars. Wow! And I, it's weird, man. You know, it's when you're an artist. Part of it is you feel like you don't deserve it somehow. I think most people would feel like, you know, you'd have to be pretty arrogant to think that the world owes you a living because the world doesn't. And when uh, you know people keep throwing money out of it, at it, it, it just Every day, I, I still just can't believe it, you know, but I'm not dumb enough to question it, so I roll with it. So all I can do is make, make sure that um, if people want to keep throwing money at it, that uh, there's stuff. Because some people want, are very philanthropic. Like uh, the, the cool thing was Peter Straub threw $500 at this thing. And he for his name on the bus, there's a little memorial plaque on the front. Yeah. But other people only want to throw 20 bucks, and they say, well, what do I get? you can't blame them you know 20 bucks is 20 bucks I'm like well you get a t-shirt or you get this but so many of those mid-level rewards if you're familiar with the Kickstarter process are, are gone they were sold out immediately so what my, my team and I are doing is we keep trying to come up with new cool stuff to put on there so that people keep you know you know there, there's rubes on that midway still and, you know, <laughs> the the you know the the spiel on the valley isn't over till the Ferris wheel lights are off so what we're um, doing this week is, uh, in fact, I just uh, molded it today. I'm, I'm making a Lovecraft cameo that um, uh, Bill M., uh, Satan Bear de Mischief, you know, yeah. that he designed very graciously. Um, there's, uh, I've got, you know, this sounds tacky. There, I've got uh, bowling shirts that say Miskatonic uh, Bowling Lounge that are being donated. Uh, Sandy Peterson, the guy who created the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, is donating stuff. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I, I, I've worked my lesser magic skills and amazingly got some high-end sponsorships with Lionsgate Films, Fearnet, Fangoria, Skies oh, uh, Inc. And you know what it comes down to, Adam? I mean, some people might be like, well, how do you do that? How do you tap into these? Well, it's easy. I worked at most of those places. So a lot of my friends still work there, and I called them up. And just it's called pulling the buddy card. I mean, yeah, there's a certain amount of salesmanship and carny and, and lesser magic, but that's the reality. You know, I kind of, it's not that I want to take the mystery away. It just, you know, it's, if people hadn't shared this information with me, I wouldn't know, and I wouldn't be turning this into a success. So I, I'd like to try and pass that on. I mean, it's just it's just figuring stuff out. It's not rocket science. It's just being willing to get your ass out of bed and work your ass off every day for months on end, 18 hours a day for no guarantee. But if you believe in it, it can happen. That's. I, I think I kind of want to reiterate what you just said there, is, is that uh, you have to work for it you have to apply uh, basic satanic principles like like lesser magic and you have to work the networks that you're associated with you have to work at life it, it, does, it is never just like oh well i was in the right place at the right time that doesn't exist you have to make the right place in the right time and what's what's fantastic is that you have the relationship with these um individuals and organizations but it's not be just because you've worked there before. It's because they respect you, because you have a repartee back and forth. You 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 have a, a a working relationship that you can sort of rely on. And going through life, just you know, 
if I can just preach on the pulpit here for a minute, you Please. have to keep that in your life. You, you like stop as long as as long as there's a benefit here. Uh, as long as as there's no it, you know if, if they fuck your wife that's one thing but <laughs> as long as as long as there's no reason not to burn that bridge don't burn that bridge uh, absolutely and it's just it's unbelievable and i mean i guess to some people this would be wow there's a lot of racists supporting this project because it's a huge success yeah, and again, I mean, here's the reality of it too. I mean, if uh, if folks feel so inclined, they can look on the Kickstarter page and they can see who has supported it. You know, our first sort of video where it's not a video of me in the workshop making stuff is uh, Stuart Gordon. Stuart, I you know, he's someone I met when I was 20 years old. He I've kept in touch, and he was he's been like a mentor, and he was the first person who said you know exactly what you just did you know, about cultivating relationships. He says, it's one thing to work with someone once, but send them a goddamn bottle of wine on their birthday. Send their wife a, a, a an anniversary card, not to cross the line, but, you know, when their kids graduate from school, just grow up and do the right thing and have a little class. He goes, you have no idea how much goodwill that buys. And he taught me this stuff. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, this stuff doesn't really occur to you unless someone tells you, and all of a sudden you put it into action and you see the returns you get from that. So when when you know I was planning this with with my team, and I and I don't mean to sound lofty or highfalutin when I say my team, but there really is a team behind this. It's mm. it's a very carefully thought out strategic thing. To it's like having a good business plan. You know, you don't just jump into it. You you better have your plan. Anyway, um, one of the first things is we wanted sort of Lovecraftian names to lend their voice to this and they did. Stuart was the first one, but it goes back to, you know, you know, people viewing Lovecraft as a racist or a great author. Stuart Gordon's Jewish. You know, we got Clive Barker on board. Clive's gay. You know, we we've got all these people who Lovecraft probably wouldn't have liked in his life. <laughs> and these people are very well aware of it, but they like the work and they're 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 grown up enough to to separate that. You know, to, to realize that, you know, some people, you know, it's, uh, well, I, I won't go into it because then it turns into a political discussion. But, you know, it's really cool that, you know, it's um, some people really, what I've noticed, and maybe that I turned 50, maybe I sound like a freaking old guy, but I find a lot, so much of the younger generation does have the sense of entitlement. And it's something that they've been raised with. And my kids are all, you know, 18 through their early 20s now. And I see it, even with my children. And it's not something that I taught them or their mother taught them. But I think it's just the culture that they're raised. They're raised in and everything is instant. If you want something, all you have to do is press that one app button on your iPhone. It takes you to Wikipedia. And you, you're taking that as gospel truth where... It, you know, when I was a kid, you know, you had to go to the library and you had to find the right book and seeking knowledge was not easy. You really had to work for it and earn it. But now everything's so readily available. I think people think that things should be free or they should be there for their taking. And it's not. And um, yeah, you know, it's well, uh, I mean, this project alone is testament that there are people who who understand that donating a little bit of Skrilla for something that will last, I mean, argument's sake, forever. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're being a part of history. I mean, okay, so how, how much longer do we have on this? 
Um, I think there's there might be a little less than three weeks left on the project, and it's like Willy Wonka said, it's not showing any signs that it is slowing. <laughs> and it's, I mean, that we definitely hit our peak. We we hit our our goal of thirty thousand dollars with a little over twenty four hours, and people just keep throwing money at it because you know there there are new people who maybe just heard about it. Um, Neil Gaiman, I mean, not to sound like such a name dropper, but Neil Gaiman had tweeted about it, and that drove a ton of traffic to our site, and it resulted in people donating. I mean, new people sort of come into the fold every every time, or or, or every day. Um, one thing that, that I will tell you is that uh, a lot of people even uh, have actually asked, what are you guys going to do with all this extra money? And even though I'd love to pocket that extra cash, because I've got bills <laughs> just like everyone else, and and Papa needs a new pair of shoes and another cool uh, Cadillac <laughs> within the driveway, but I can't because it's it's a very public thing. This isn't a, a work for hire. So um, as of today, what we're doing, even though the bu the bust itself is being donated as a gift of public work to the Providence Athenaeum Library, which is actually it's a membership library. You you can't just walk in there and borrow a book. I think it's there's a membership fee, like like a video store used to be, and that you know you pay that annually and you borrow the books. So what uh, the team and I decided to do was since there is this surplus of cash was we got in touch with the Providence Community Library Association which governs all the public libraries in Providence and one of the things that we thought would be the right thing to do is take a portion of that of of the extra cash you know this is after we pay for the bronze after we pay for the shipping after we fulfill all the rewards levels to the people who've donated then we're gonna see exactly what's left over we're gonna take a portion of that and make a donation to I, I I can't say we've got a specific library in mind, but it is under the umbrella of the Providence Community Libraries, and all those libraries have literacy programs. And we thought it would be the right thing to do to make a, a sizable donation to one of those libraries um, for their literacy program for for children. Oh, um, well, you know, it's just the right thing to do, man. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd love to pocket that cash, but I can't. You know, it's public. I mean, people are donating this because they believe in the project, not me. So, and and I recognize that. So, at any rate, during the the Necronomicon event, um, we'll obviously have the unveiling, which is going to be August twenty second, uh, two thousand and thirteen, the, at the Athenium Library. Um, during the weekend, or I guess right around that week, I think the convention runs from the twenty second through the twenty fifth. We'll actually be making the public donation to one of these libraries and there's going to be a lot of press there and what's going to make me feel good about it is I mean to put it bluntly since Lovecraft's racism does enter into the conversation the Providence Athenium Library is a very waspish well-to-do private library in you know a white neighborhood mm -hmm. it, you know and some people don't like hearing this stuff but this is part of being a realist and the goal is to present the check to a library, not to, you know, divide people by color lines, but just a library that, you know, is not a waspish white neighborhood. And do it in Lovecraft's name. So if anyone, you know, sort of says, well, you're erecting a monument to this racist author, it's like, well, we're also donating to a literacy program for kids who, you know, might be, not have, you know, the privilege that a lot of us do. And, you know, we're, we're hoping to kind of cancel that argument out. Yeah. You know, 
to, you know, even though, yeah, Lovecraft himself is not making the donation, but we are, myself and the team are, to, do, to kind of do the right thing. And, you know, and again, I don't want, um, it, it, it does sound heavily politicized, but I think that's the time we live in where I don't like to take it there, but that's where it winds up going. Yeah. You know, so hopefully, you know, we can try and make everyone happy. And I know no matter what we do, there's always going to be someone who's going to be, you know, tearing down your efforts. And that goes back to the Cadillac ad, the penalty of leadership. You know, if you're doing something halfway and mediocre, no one would pay any attention. But the minute you take a definite stand, that's when people are going to have a very good opinion of it. Hopefully we'll have mostly that or a very bad opinion. And it's like Winston Churchill said, too. I mean, uh, what, what did he say? You have enemies? Good. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. And I think it's, I, I've always liked it too because it makes sense. You know, the same with Anton LaVey. I mean, he believed in what he wrote about. And, you know, some people dug what he had to say and what he was about, and some people didn't. But I think if you uh, do something very unique and specific in life and you take risks and you stand by those decisions, you're, uh, you can't make everyone happy, but all you can do is make yourself happy. So that's what Brian, the 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 stinking old man who just turned fifty. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's also keep in mind. I mean, we we can uh, we can play off on those those uh, concerns a little bit. So if you are one of those individuals that is worried about supporting a project like this because you don't want to be associated with a racist that's been dead for a very long time. Um, yeah. This could be a way that you could alter his legacy. Now, we're getting into some touchy, you know, sort exactly of it, man. subjects I, I like that, that. But That's so well said. It's, it's, and I really apologize for interrupting, but that's exactly it. It is altering the legacy where there, there is good that can come from that. And this is all from the fan community, the people who love Lovecraft's work. Mm -hmm. They are supporting that even though, yeah, it's just me and a half a dozen people who are making the decision to give to a literacy program to a library, but you're right. People can't say, oh, Lovecraft, that mean old awful racist. It's like, well, because of you know the fan community who does believe in Lovecraft, the great author, these kids in this, you know, poor library that doesn't have jack shit, you know, they suddenly have books and an after-school program to maybe make a difference in at least, you know, one of their lives. You hope. That, that, that's the goal anyway, and you can only hope for the best. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's... Oh, yeah. no, it, it's absolutely okay. So let's, I mean, I don't really want to go, it, as for the audience, if you want to see the different pledge levels available, and there are rewards for uh, virtually every single one of these pledge levels, uh, go check it out again kickstarter.com and search HP Lovecraft bronze bust project and you will land on the page uh, there's a bunch of images and uh, video of this project so far but you can you can find a, a a pledge level that's definitely within your budget and that's the important thing responsibility they're responsible here people find what you're capable of doing but there's also I mean you can I mean not only are you supporting this project in that you are helping financially create something that will last stand the test of time um, to a legacy of a, a, a really amazing author but you can actually also have your name associated with it right yep yep you sure can um, we actually sold out of that rewards level there were uh, okay yeah 25 people and those were one of the first things to sell out which shocked me they were uh, going for five hundred dollars a piece and on on the front of where there's this very you know uh, sort of a custom-made 
pedestal made out of alder and it's got molding on the top and the bottom that the bronze bust itself will sit on and there's a memorial plaque on the front that uh, we're not even exactly sure what the verbiage is going to be but it's going to say something to the effect of presented to the Providence Athenium Library by the fans of H.P. Lovecraft and on that there's going to be about 25 names of the people who you know basically spent a lot of money yeah. And really contributed, uh, you know, a lot of money to the project, and their names are going on that. What's funny about it was when when I started seeing the Kickstarter awards, I didn't recognize most of the names because when you're involved in the Lovecraft community, you know names like St. Joshi or Willem Pugmire or just names that are associated with the fan base movement. And the only name I really recognized was Peter Straub, which. Uh, you know, reminds me of a funny story. I won't go too off much off on a tangent, but um, when I was 20 years old, I was flat broke and living out of my car and just getting my sculpting career going. And uh, a friend of mine had given me this battered copy of The Talisman written by Stephen King and Peter Straub. And I would sit in my car waiting for things to magically get better, which they didn't. You know, I had to get off my ass and, and, and make them change. But I remembered reading that book and I couldn't put it down. It was a really cool book. It was sort of like Tom Sawyer in Fantasyland, but with the horror that Straub and King are so good at writing about. Anyway, uh, but I remember those, those hard days of, you know, being hungry and having no money and living out of my car. And all I had was this paperback of the talisman. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, as I, I was watching the Kickstarter, I, you know, oh, you've got a new backer. I'm like, oh, cool. Ooh, someone donated $500 to get their name on us. <laughs> Peter Straub. And it just made me flash back. And I, I got choked up. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, so it's it's funny if, you, if you're just willing to get off your ass and work hard with no help from anyone towards what you want to do in life really cool stuff like that can happen so I hope you know I, I don't know if he's gonna to go to the unveiling I just hope at some point I can tell Peter Straub that story and say you know what I know I sound like a total dork but you have no idea what that means to me to you know have that support 30 years later I still can't believe it so it's yeah. It, it's really kind of cool when, when good stuff like that happens and people that, you know, I've always looked up to like, uh, you know, John Carpenter and, you know, and, yeah. Parker, you know, and Peter Straub, when they're actually throwing their support behind this without me having to beg, I'm like, you know what, maybe it was a good idea after all. Maybe there are some things that are bigger than us in life and the work we leave behind and how we treat other people and with a little luck, you know, like you just said, you can alter, Lovecraft can't alter his legacy, but we can alter our own by making, you know, the best choices that we know how to do, and we all make mistakes, and that's just part of the, the human experience, man, you know, but... Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, throughout these little um, experiences we have, we are defining our own legacy, so I don't want to put too much weight on, you know, y you back a project and suddenly, you know, you're <laughs> whatever, but the point stands that what you support follows through it follows you through life um who you are you know you will have this echo so you know for some people hp lovecraft is this amazing author for some people he's a wild racist uh for everyone he is someone of worth and they know him for the most part i mean i know early on we said a lot of people didn't which baffles <laughs> my mind um, yeah, exactly. but everyone i've ever met knows who he is even if they haven't read everything he's written right. um they know of him so 
you know, if if you if you want to if you want to be a part of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft history as as an author, uh, go check out the Kickstarter page uh, for the H.P. Lovecraft Bronze Bus Project, and you know what, toss in a dime if you can do it, um, or share the word, spread it to your friend, tell your friends about it, because you know you may not be um, in the in the financial position to support, but maybe your friend or your brother or your sister is, and they would want to. So just because the original um, uh, very conservative goal has been met does not mean that there are uh, no place for support. Uh, Brian has already talked to you about uh, where a, a sizable portion of this money is going to go, and I don't think anyone can argue, even the most, even the most liberal, uh, <laughs> progressive individual could argue that that's a, a bad thing. So support the project if you can, share the message if you cannot financially support it, and let's help H.P. Lovecraft's legacy grow, and in that process, define a little bit of character in you. Brian, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Adam, and my best to you and everyone else, and we'll see you the next time. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that is going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it's long, and I appreciate you sitting through it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching 9 Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, the source for online satanic media. And once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, hail Satan.